Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Americans and welcome to episode 95 with my dear friend Jane Kim, who is the newest executive director of Collaboration, an organization that has meant so much to me and to thousands of people over the world over the last 20 years. So I want to thank um, Jane for sharing a little bit of her story growing up in Chicago and uh, her journey in the world of nonprofit management, uh, finding herself here uh, leading one of the most impactful uh, Asian American nonprofits in the entertainment and leadership empowerment space. So really excited to share this story with her. Um, we're now in Clubhouse, as I'm sure you are. You have heard about the uh, app and the platform for a while. Um, and we are going to amplify a lot of our Just Like Media podcast brands, including Beyond the Resumes, uh, Asian Podcast Network, The Asian Americans as well, uh, on Clubhouse. So if you're on the platform, uh, please follow me at Jerry Wan. And you'll be uh, led to the Asian Americans Club, where we uh, host all of these conversations. So um, it's discovery is a little bit hard, but if you are on the Clubhouse app, just search Jerry Wan, and please give me a follow. I'll follow you back, and let's hope to grow some more important Asian American conversations there. Uh, follow us on the Asian Americans on Instagram and wherever you can, and looking forward to engaging with you. We are quickly approaching our 100th episode, where I'll be sharing my story for the first time. And so if you want a little bit of time to catch up on some other episodes, uh, you got about two weeks until we launch episode 100. So thanks again so much for tuning in. And here now is my conversation with Jane Kim. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. And in this new year, in 2021, we hope that you continue to find health, happiness, and success, and whatever that means for you and to you. And we are really excited to have our guest today. She is the newly announced and uh, she has taken over the role of an organization that is very, very near and dear to my heart. About a year ago, we started on week one of this podcast, More about a year ago, um, and on episode five, we heard from Paul P.K. Kim, who founded Collaboration, an organization that has meant so much to me and to so many Asian Americans, I guess Asians across the world. And so uh, our guest today, Jane, is somebody who is now the new uh, executive director of the organization. And so really excited to learn about her history, how the Kim family came to the States and how she made the interesting choice, firstly, to go into nonprofit management, having spent many, many years serving the students and families across the country at the YMCA and how she found her way recently into leading one of the preeminent entertainment and leadership organizations within our community. And so really, really excited to welcome my friend Jane Kim to the show. Hi, Jane. Hi. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation because we, we've had many conversations, you know, previous to us recording this, obviously, about our mutual passions for collaboration and, and more importantly, what it stands for. Um, in particular, what was once probably the only way for Asian Pacific Americans to actually showcase their talent long before YouTube and long before Instagram and TikTok and how it's evolved into this really powerhouse brand where um, it's built community and it stands for so much more than just a talent show platform. And so I want to get to all of that, you know, uh, as we talk today. And really, the goal is to inspire other people to follow the path that uh, you've chosen. You know, I think I'm also excited to learn and I'm sure our audience is, you know, current American parents and nonprofit aren't supposed to exist in the same sentence, um, certainly not as a career <laughs> It's something I think most parents would be like, oh, that's cute. Do it for so you can get into college. And then 
you know, go make money or go do something else. So really excited to learn from you and how all that came about. But let, let's start at the beginning. Share with us the, the, the Kim family journey to America, when, how, where, and um, tell us a little bit about growing up as a young Jane Kim in the States. Sure. Um, gosh, so my parents, uh, my dad actually was the first one that came to the States um, in the late 60s. And so he came through um, really as um, a reward, I, I guess you can say, to his final military mission. And so mm. um, entry into the, into the U.S. was kind of part of the deal that he um, oh. was able to get, which is great. Um, and so he literally entered through New York and with just a couple dollars in his pocket, um, and you know, it's so funny because I think stereotypically, like there's always been, there's this sense of conflict between Korean Americans or Asian Americans and black Americans, right. And African Americans. Mm. And my dad always used to remind me just, um, you know, starting years ago that one of the first people that helped him financially when he got to New York was a black person you know, who really just helped him, um, gave him a few bucks while he was taking a walk in the park. Um, and so like, that's always resonated with me. Um, but yeah, so he started out in New York and then somehow ended up in Chicago Mm. and worked in manufacturing in, um, like a belt industry, like totally random. Right. Um, And he then went into the auto body business. And so growing up, my dad had an auto body shop, fixed cars up all the time. Um, And then, you know, obviously before that, like once he got settled, he brought my mom over. And so my mom was living in Korea and my mom was taking care of my dad's siblings as well in Seoul. And so, you know, both my parents... Hmm. Um, both of my parents' parents, um, you know, there were some tragedies very early on in their lives. And so like my dad lost his mom fairly early, um, in his life. And so with all the kids, like, um, you know, their dad was obviously around my grandpa, um, but they raised each other, um, pretty much. And my mom, my mom's family was kind of the same way because my mom's mom actually passed away early on from uterine cancer. And then my maternal grandfather, um, they, you know, during the war, they're just assuming the assumption has always been um, that he was captured during the war. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so obviously like we, don't know for sure whatever happened. And so my mom and her siblings really raised each other too. And so because my mom and my dad had, you know, they went to school together um, in Korea. And so they created this um, family of their own really to help um, raise each other. And so when my dad first came to the uni- to this United States, um, he came over, my mom stayed back and obviously like still helped with her family and with his family. And then she came over and they settled in Chicago um, and started having the kids, right? My brother was first, 
Um, he's three years older than I am, and then my sister, and then myself. We were all born and raised in Chicago, so um, Chicago kids love the city. Um, but yeah, you know, what's interesting with my story is I don't feel like, um, I, I don't feel like I necessarily had typical Korean parents, right? Like, I don't feel like they try to, um, put a lot of pressure on us growing up. Um, in fact, I feel like they tried so hard to have us assimilate, like whether or not it was in school or what we were doing, what we were eating, like taking road trips, like we would take road trips all the time, you know, during mm. elementary school, um, eating Twinkies and, you know, anything American, right? Like we would go to the local Woolworth store and always get treats and um, so very Americanized upbringing. Um, but, you know, there are certain times, obviously, like we grew up with some Korean traditions, like during the holidays and stuff, but um, nothing too significant, quite honestly. Um, I would say the biggest Korean thing for me was um, I was forced to take piano for nine years, right? And that was like a big expectation from my mom, especially where um, I was, you know, like I was competing and it was like hardcore piano lessons. And mm. um, I actually stopped doing it when I was a teenager, because at that point, like I was sick of it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I was kind of in my rebellious stage and I just um, stopped doing it. But um, yeah, so I think it's, I never grew up with like a strong Korean identity. We didn't speak a lot of Korean in the house. Um, my dad always wanted to work on his English. My mom wanted to work on our English, but you know, at the same time, like we, we were bilingual at home, but it wasn't expected that we would speak Korean to them all the time. I think Chicago is a fascinating place for the Korean American experience because I, I grew up in L.A. I, I went to high school in New York City and there's physical clusters of community in both of those cities as well as, you know, um, in, in parts of Atlanta and, you know, Northern Virginia. But in Chicago, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was really never a a, a, a like a concentrated wide area of Korean commerce, it feels like just like the way that city of Chicago is designed from the city sort of sprawling out into the, the Western suburbs, the Korean American community just, you know, motivated by commerce and where you could have a business, there wasn't necessarily like a very Korean part of the Chicago suburbs, right? And and so when I meet friends from Chicago, they don't have like, whether it's a Fullerton or an Irvine or a Flushing where there's like, you know, the Korean capital of Chicago, and, and so I, I think for my friends from Chicago, at least the ones that I know, their Korean American experience is very different than mine. It was more American than the Korean part because you had to seek it out and it was centered probably around family relationships or religious affiliations or community organizations rather than like Fullerton, where I grew up was like more Korean than anything else, even 20, 30 years ago. No, I would, I will say there was, you know, for any Koreans that grew up in Chicago, um, Lawrence street, that mm. was like K-Town in Chicago. 
you know, that's where a lot of the Korean businesses were, were lined up, um, north side of Chicago. Um, and, and obviously like the religious affiliations, right? Church obviously was a big part of my life growing up, going to a Korean church. And quite honestly, that was probably the most exposure that I had, um, having Korean friends or being around Korean families, um, aside from just a handful of Korean friends that I had in elementary school that, you know, I still remember. Hmm. Um, but no, there was, I would say Lawrence street was definitely the Korean, um, business area for Chicago. And, you know, and that's where my dad had his auto body shop. And so we would be there all the time and all the Korean families would come in to get their cars fixed. And, uh, you know, and so there was definitely a sense of community with the Korean, um, with the Korean families, at least where I grew up and where my dad had his business in the city. Mm. Uh, But a totally different story once we moved up into the suburbs. So I moved up into the suburbs when I was in seventh grade, and that was a total 180 difference in terms of, you know, the experiences I had or the exposures that I had to any type of Korean, Korean community. And what was that like for you? Um, you know, that was a really, uh, Seventh grade, I would say, was kind of the turning point of my life for so many reasons. Um, You know, we went through a lot right before that time. And uh, my parents got divorced, which back then, right, like was unheard of Mm. for for um, your parents, especially Koreans, to get to get divorced. And so it caused a lot of there was a lot of heartache. There was a lot of trauma um, for me, my brother, and my sister. Um, and at the same time, it was just very weird for me because we all of a sudden went from living with both of our parents where my dad worked all the time and my mom was the stay-at-home parent. Um, and we actually lived full-time with our dad after the divorce, which um, was so unconventional, you know, just in general, right, for parents getting divorced, for the court to um, give full custody to the father. And then in the Korean community, it was just very unheard of. And so that, the divorce, and really just shifting from my mom being our primary caregiver to our dad, and then moving into the suburbs. So we moved into the suburbs into a very uh, north side of Chicago, about, you know, 20 miles north of Chicago, um, into, you know, what was an affluent community. And, um, I, I struggled a lot with that. I think not so much because I was coming in as a Korean person, but I think because it was like, I just didn't feel like I fit into this, um, into like the social status of the community that we moved into. But, you know, of course, the reason why we moved up there was for education. Mm. So, um, you know, 
Mutrier High School in Chicago, in Winneka, Illinois, you know, one of the top high schools in the state. And that was the reason why we moved up there. My brother was just um, starting his sophomore year. My sister was, was starting her freshman year. And of course, I had to come in in seventh grade, which is like the worst time, I think, to move on, you know, especially with everything else going on. And um, Nutrier, you know, what was, what was interesting there, too, is tons of Koreans. Like high population of Korean families, because again, like you were saying, like the Korean community would just travel together, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, did you hear? Like they have a great school out here. And then so like slowly, it was like everyone started moving up into the suburb. And so there were tons of Korean families out there. But um, honestly, like I... I think I only had like one Korean friend all throughout um, junior high and high school, maybe one or two Korean friends, even though there were, you know, there were a lot of them. Um, I only, you know, became friends with a few and just life in general was just very different. You know, my dad was never around. Um, I would say my brother, my sister, and I kind of raised ourselves a little bit um, growing up during middle school and high school, getting into a lot of trouble, um, at least for myself. My brother, yeah. my brother and I got in a lot of trouble. My sister was like the good Christian daughter, and you know she's the one that went grocery shopping for us every week. Uh, made sure that, you know, if we had friends over, things didn't get too crazy, which (laughs) they did get crazy uh, a lot of times. Uh, So, yeah, it was just, it was a complete 180 going from, you know, um, city life where, you know, my parents were really involved in the Korean community, being raised by my mom, and then all of a sudden moving into um, the suburbs with, uh, my dad, uh, just new school, new surroundings, new environment. You know, I just wasn't used to just um, the culture, I guess, of the suburbs. It was tough. How did that change sort of what you wanted to do? What did you, so, I mean, your, your, your background, obviously, like so many uh, um, of, of our peers, um, small business, in the suburbs where I imagine a lot of your peers, you know, in the same bucket, right? A lot of, like many, so many, so many immigrants, families, what were you being inspired or allowed to believe that was possible for you as, as one of three children? And and did you talk about that with your siblings on like, do we need to get out of here? This is like where I want to stay. Like at what point did you start to think about like life outside of the Chicago suburbs or life after the Chicago suburbs? Um, you know, I don't, uh, we never really talked about it. And I think college, right? Like college was the time where we were like, that's our break. Mm. That's where we can go live somewhere else, discover our own identities without, um, you know, with some of the challenges that we were dealing with in the family, my dad ended up getting remarried. It was very, it was just a very difficult transition. Like the whole divorce thing was, was Mm. tough. 
um, you know, my, my stepmom, like I, I was a horrible stepchild, absolutely horrible. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, like for me, college was the time where I was like, I can just break away and, but I will say like the, I didn't want to go too far because I had a really close relationship with my mom, you know, like growing up, my mom was my best friend. And even after my parents got divorced, like, um, it was hard to see my mom and we knew that she was struggling, right. Struggling financially and uh, emotionally and mentally. And, um, you know, I would, we still figured out ways to like see each other and talk to each other. And so I never wanted to go too far away to college because I still wanted to be close, close enough to my mom where I can visit her. So, yeah, I mean, I would say like, there was no other than that, Jerry, like no one, we never got pressured to like go to law school or to go to med school. Like it was just, we never talked about career options with our parents or anything like that. And so, again, I feel like that was a blessing for us that we didn't have these expectations placed on us yeah. from our parents. But at the same time, I think that that forces you to think a little differently about what you want to do and what, yeah. you know, what your passion really is and you know, all three of us ended up somehow in the social service education field. Really? And I think, yeah. And so I think that speaks to our childhood, right? And maybe the influence, the, the influences that we did have growing up that really did have lifelong impressions um, on us individually in different ways. That's fascinating. What do your other siblings do and in what particular areas of, of social and, and education? Um, so my brother, um, my brother went into education and he, you know, again, like he became a high school English teacher. Oh, like, that's so cool. He loves reading, loves literature. And so um, that's what he started teaching, um, at, you know, another suburban high school in Chicago. Um, uh, my sister, I laugh at my sister because, you know, my sister's way of escaping everything was she went to school at Michigan state university to get her teaching credentials and never came back. She still lives there. <laughs> um, you know, she still lives in Holt, Michigan with her husband and four kids. And, you know, they're a total MSU family. And so we laughed because our family has a rivalry because my brother and I went to Illinois and my sister and her whole family are an MSU family. And so anytime there's an Illinois and an MSU game, like it's, uh, it's fun. It definitely becomes fun. And so my sister um, got her teaching license and, you know, she actually didn't end up teaching very long because, um, you know, after she got married and had kids, she just, she became a stay at home mom, um, was very involved in the church out there. Her husband is actually a pastor at a church. Um, 
And so, you know, but still like that's, you know, um, she loves to, um, give back through service, right. Through her church. Um, and she'll still help with, um, certain things out there. My brother right now, um, is actually a teacher at the American school of Paris. And so he went from Chicago from the suburban high school in Chicago and then went to Milan to teach and then went to Paris to teach. And he's still there now. Um, you know, he was an he's English teacher, athletic director, you know, just very different mix, I guess. Mm. Um, and then for me, my background or for like my whole social service thing. Uh, so I went to school at Illinois, got my degree in psychology, and my original plan was to go and get some field practice in social work and then eventually go back to school and get either um, my uh, master's in social work or else go get my PhD in psychology. Like those were, that's what I was planning on doing. And then I, you know, I spent six months in social work and it was the toughest six months of my Mm. life. Um, you know, I was working at a residential treatment center and, um, you know, seeing what these children were experiencing, um, emotionally, mentally was just hard on me. Like I brought it home with me all the time. Um, physically it was also hard because like, um, I was going to work and having to physically restrain these children And, you know, and get punched at and bit and spit on and called Mm. names that I had never gotten called before. And at that point, like I had already been doing some part-time work at the YMCA out there Mm. and a full-time position opened up and they asked me to come back. And I said, (laughs) yes. Um, And, you know, and that was like 20, that was like, oh my gosh, like almost 25 years ago. So that's how I got into the nonprofit world was with, with a Y. What attracted you to that from a part-time perspective in the first place that got you in the door? Well, so I started working at the YMCA during the summers of my college life um, as a camp counselor. You know, I've always enjoyed working with kids and, you know, maybe, I don't know, like a part of me always feels like uh, maybe I felt like I missed out a little bit on my childhood Um, and so I would just like, love like playing games with them and, you know, doing crafts with them and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, doing that over the summers and then going into the why full time, um, as a director was definitely different, right? Like you had to bring other skills and talents to the table Um, around like business management, that's really what you were doing. You were planning, you were budgeting, working with volunteers, um, staffing, hiring. um, And that's actually like one of the things that I absolutely loved um, was the coaching and the mentoring that I was able to provide to the young adults and the college students that would work, you know, work for me every summer as camp counselors. That's awesome. I, it's and then it's led to you. You didn't leave until earlier this year, or I guess we're recording this in 2020. I, I guess then the question begs: 
why why stay and when did you i guess for for folks let's step sidestep a little bit and sort of talk about the why holistically what do we what is the why and i think most people have their own definitions of it what kind of programming did you provide and and then what about that mission or what part of that mission of that broad mission spoke to you at your soul that you you know were willing to uh, stay for as long as you did because um, a paycheck is a paycheck you could have gotten it from anywhere else and nonprofit isn't the way to get wealthy in, in any you know I guess standard or understanding so like w- what drove you to stay and what was sort of the heart pulling angle of what you did you know the the thing that was most um the biggest the biggest reason why I started with the why originally was because, you know, my background in psychology and social work and working with families, like that was always my personal mission, right, was to somehow have a positive impact on um, families, whether, you know, and originally I thought that that was going to be through social work or through psychology. And What I loved about the why when I first went in full time was that I was able to engage with families in a totally different way that still made an impact um, on their relationships with one another. And so my first really, you know, my first position with the why was as um, a youth and family director. Hmm. And so like all the programming that I did was all around strengthening families. And, you know, and that till this day, I think is one of the great assets of the Y, you know, the YMCA is not just a gym and swim. I think, you know, a few decades ago, like that was, uh, you know, that was how the public perceived them, even though they did do some amazing, um, you know, what I would call like social work programs and family strengthening programs and, um, the reality is, is they do so much more. I mean, you talk about youth development, um, social responsibility, healthy living, and that's really what the core of the YMCA is. And so that spoke to me personally um, in my heart because I knew that there was, um, I knew I had an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of not only the youth in the program, but also the families. Um, and then also bringing in other key stakeholders and volunteers and funders. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's the reason why I was with the YMCA for so long. And, um, but I will say like, Jerry, like I, I had to be proactive in my own career path. You know, I had a very, I had, I would say I had a very unique career path, not just as a Korean American, but also just as a nonprofit staff person. You know, I spent five years in programming and really learned the ins and outs of, um, you know, program management, how you um, budget and forecast Mm -hmm. and work with volunteers, like I said. But then I did a complete 180 and I went into the fundraising world with a YMCA. So I went from a YMCA in Chicago doing programming and moved up and left and went to Minneapolis and spent three years with the Minneapolis Y doing fundraising and learning. And 
I will tell you, I had absolutely no fundraising background, <laughs> I guess. Um, but they took a chance on me. And that's where, you know, you're just able to connect with people through the interview process or really just uh, make sure that you're empowering yourself to learn more. And um, so they brought me on as a financial development specialist with no fundraising background whatsoever. Hmm. They trained me um, and I was able to do great things in Minneapolis. And then I kind of missed being with like really close to a community and with staff members. And so that's how I ended up in LA and um, became an executive director for a YMCA in LA and did that for six years. And so typically like it's, you know, typically within the YMCA world, like you go from just being a program person and then you kind of go up the operations rank Um, And I kind of did programs and then went to fundraising, zigzagged back to ops, and then ended up at the national office. But I will say that at every point in my career, I made sure that I advocated for myself. Um, You know, like I, I had my supervisors create new positions for me um, because I I always wanted to do more. I wanted to do better. I wanted to create new things for myself as a nonprofit professional. And I was blessed really to have some amazing mentors along the way um, that really believed in me, not only professionally, but also personally and um, knew that I could learn new things or, um, that I could bring something, you know, significant to the table. And that's kind of how I created my own path. And so, you know, I feel like I had a very empowering career journey so far in the nonprofit yeah. world. So how, how long were you there in, in total? Uh, professionally around 23 years. Wow. Okay. I, I mean, I, I want to not specifically, I know you weren't in charge of, you know, anything Asian American or related at the Y, but I, I want to ask you some questions sort of around what you learned about the community, because a lot of our community members, regardless of geography or socioeconomic status, we don't necessarily participate as much in, I guess, social services broadly, but even things like the Y where lack of understanding, lack of knowledge of, of what programs even exist um, again, you mentioned most folks know it as a, a gym and a pool, right? And like exercise classes, but you obviously provide a lot more services than that. Even, uh, you know, we have a mutual uh, a contact in in Ray who runs the local Koreatown Y. And, you know, some, some of the conversations that I've had around her is like, we have so much to offer the community, but they just, it's just so hard to get the word out because there's a language barrier, there's trust factors, there's so much there. And, and so... How has, how have you seen that evolve? And, you know, like Minneapolis, there's, you know, different types of Asian American communities. And so while while the Y is a general community service or, you know, it's a nonprofit dedicated not to any particular group of people, how has that evolved from your perspective of our community getting involved and taking advantage of those services that exist to better everybody? And especially now, 
um, having stepped back from it and with an external perspective, what can we as community leaders, organizations like the Y and the community at large do to make sure that we don't have this stereotype or this generalization of, oh, you know, like, because those organizations probably look at our community and go, they don't come to us. And in the community screaming, well, you never come to us. And it's just this looking at each other like, well, who's supposed to have that burden of taking the first move? Um, talk to us about sort of how you see the Asian American, the various and the, the very diverse communities that we represent, sort of your experience perspective with, with the why. You know, it's funny, Jerry. I remember when I first became the YM, uh, the executive director at the YMCA up here in uh, Santa Clarita. Uh, you know, word gets around when <laughs> Koreans like find out that there's uh uh, one of us, a fellow Korean <laughs> um, executive director in town. And uh, I remember very vividly, again, going back to the fact that, you know, I had an open door policy um, with anyone, but I remember vividly that this Korean mom um, wanted, wanted to speak to me and um she wanted, gosh, what was it about? I think it was about her child's swim lessons. Hmm. Um, you know, but I sat down with her and I talked to her. And from that moment, like something must have happened, you know, where there was like, where there were people talking about, oh yeah, the YMC does this, right? Because once you tell one Korean mom it's like all of a sudden they all knew about it, which yeah. is really cool, right? But I think, so here's my my impression. I think um, generally speaking, like with the YMCAs, yes, they offer some amazing programs. And, you know, the ones that seem to resonate really well with um, the Korean community are the art classes, STEM classes. They even do... Um, some of the YMCA's have diabetes prevention programs. They do, they have a program, some of them have a program called Live Strong that's really focused on cancer survivors. Um, they also do senior, like senior programming, right? Which is so big for, I think, all Asian American communities and providing that community, that sense of belonging for our aging um, population and our seniors and that mm. social time. Um, but they also provide food programs, right? So for those vulnerable and low income communities um, and childcare, after school programming, preschool, I mean, there's just so much. But I think for any organization out there, any Korean organization, any Asian American community organization out there, the YMCA is always open to working together. And I think I've seen a huge shift um, happen, especially I would say over the past five to 10 years where um, they're being encouraged to work with other nonprofits, right? It's not a we're going to do it better than this other organization. It's how do we work together to serve our community better, our, our community members the best that we can. And so there's this, this sense of collaboration and partnership that I think has really um, emerged over the past decade, especially with YMCAs. And so, you know, if you have, um, 
you know, if you're part of a nonprofit or a business that, you know, has an opportunity to help the YMCA fulfill its mission or vice versa, like reach out to your YMCA. I think even right now, um, when communities are struggling, YMCAs across the country are serving food and providing food to low-income families. Um, and once COVID is done and once, you know, YMCA facilities open up, I think the other thing that I would love your viewers to know is that the YMCA never um, turn, doesn't turn away any family or individual from a membership for an inability to pay. And so they have financial assistance available to families that want to take advantage of, you know, whether or not it's health and fitness programs, youth programs, sports programs. Um, they have ways to help, uh, help make sure that they're meeting your needs. I think those are really important focus points. When you, when you talk to non-ethnic community specific nonprofits who operate at scale, sometimes have access to resources or programs or um, partnerships with all sorts of levels of governments who have no choice but to work with such a large partner that has the outreach scalability. Because generally of language and cultural misalignment, like a lot of that falls stuff through the cracks. So, you know, it, it really takes, you know, uh, a community leader to actually understand and this is where I think it's really important, particularly for, you know, pockets of the community like a Koreatown or Chinatowns in San Francisco or New York, where the, the organizational leaders at the national level, not, not to typecast and not to just place people just because of who you are. You have to have thoughtful leaders who understand the community, who speak the language and understand the average person coming in or it doesn't work. Right. And, yeah. And, and so and, and we see this problem all the time. Right. Where it's like, oh, we put the best people regardless of that because we're colorblind or, you know, everybody should, you know, and, and they take this sort of bogus high road of like, we're just, you know, we don't want to offend, but it's like, if, if the neighborhood that you serve is predominantly a speaks Spanish speaking language, you're actually doing yourself a disservice if you don't put a Spanish Spanish speaking person there. Same thing as in Koreatown, or even if you don't speak the language, somebody who's a familiar face, like you just shared with your story in, in the Valencia area, right? Like, and people just resonate and people feel more warmly to that organization. And, and that's sort of how it happens. And, and, and so how we sort of fix that at, in my opinion, at, at today's level is how do we then encourage other folks, um, younger folks who may not have considered this sort of work partially because it's not encouraged at home, partially because there's not enough of the Jane Kims in the world who are visible at the highest leaders of nonprofit executive leadership at notable organizations, and partially because it's not the sexy, shiny toy jobs that people, you know, um, flaunt about. But we do need people from our community to go into all levels of life and community, including business and medicine and certainly nonprofit, because studying your way out of earning your way out of, uh, you know, meritly earning your way out of like this, it, it's still going to affect our community. And so, um, what, what are some thoughts you have around sharing the news or inspiration or messages with young people about choosing this path? What have you learned? I, I know you do it all over again, but like, what are some things you maybe you wish I had known as 
a much younger uh, Jane Kim and, and for folks that might be thinking about this and not associating immediately with, well, you know, it's something I must do. It's something, how do we take that into something that people are excited for? And how do we empower the organizations to make the system work so that people don't have to sacrifice livelihood or, you know, that it's not just a path for people who don't have to worry about finances in that meaningful way for us to survive? You know, it's funny, Jerry, because I have never, I've never seen the nonprofit world in general as uh, a non-viable option financially. Um, And so I think that's one of the first misconceptions that I would like to just, at at least from my personal experience, is, um, of course, the paychecks weren't great in the beginning, right? But I think there's always intangible benefits that you really need to think about. Mm. You know, for any um, young person out there that is thinking about it, you know, you you can't just look at the paycheck. You need to look at what benefits they offer, you know, and stuff like that. But I think most importantly is it's feeding your passion for doing something good, right? And for doing what you're, what you feel like is your true calling. And um, that is always worth so much more um, than a paycheck. Obviously, you need the paycheck to pay your bills, but... Um, you know, and I think that's one of the things for me that I always kept uh, first and foremost is making a difference. Like that was my passion and that's always been my goal is how how can I make a difference in the lives of the of the people, the kids, the families um, in their lives and make it better or give them the tools to help them succeed more and um so i think that's you know it is it is a scary place at times being in the nonprofit world but i think there are so many opportunities you know especially for it's not just a nonprofit right like right. nonprofits have finance managers nonprofits right. have marketing people and they have branding people they have communications people they have legal departments i mean you know, like I look at my national, uh, the YMCA's national office when I was there and, you know, we had legal, we had a diversity and inclusion department that was huge, um, programs, ops. I mean, there's just so much that I don't think a lot of people realize the level of areas that nonprofits, um, can provide in terms of professional development. Um, I will also say, like, looking back at my experience, um, you know, I came in when I became an executive director um, at the LA YMCA. Like, I was fairly young, but I think what made it harder for me was that I also looked a lot younger than I already was, right? And Mm -hmm. so it was almost like I had two strikes against me going in. And so, like, I had to present myself very professionally so that people would realize that I was actually older than they thought I was. And so, you know, just, I would just make sure like, you know, you're presenting yourself in a very professional way that, um, that really does 
focus and spotlight your talents and your skills. Um, because that was a drawback for me and something that I learned about early on in my career was that you just need to kind of step up your game a little bit um, so that people do notice you and do take you seriously, I guess. And I don't know if that's an Asian thing, right? Or if it's just me and, you know, some of, you know, the concerns that I had or, uh, you know, self-doubt that I was having, but I, I definitely know like that was something I had to do. But I would also say for professionals, right? Like if you're not looking to do nonprofit world as a career, there's opportunity. There's so much opportunity to give your time and your talent as a volunteer, as a board member, because representation matters mm. um, on boards as well. Representation matters to the volunteer base and the volunteer groups that really do the outreach in the community. Um, representation matters when it comes to just um, being in a space with other community members so that, again, they can walk in and be like, oh, there's someone else here that looks like me or, you know, that I feel comfortable with. And so, you know, spend that time like getting to talk to people, get to learn, um, you know, what an organization is all about. And if there's an organization where you feel passionate about what they're doing and what their mission is, like offer your time, offer, you know, if you want to be on the board, um, ask them. I think sometimes we just get scared and we don't ask the question. How do we encourage our peers to join us along these journeys? Because I have myself spoken at an event at the Y here in greater Los Angeles, had a very worthwhile time doing it as some friends to join. Um, I not to brag, but just as a matter of statement, serve on a board of a charter school uh, management organization here in Los Angeles. I, I have definitely have experienced the personal fulfillment ROI and the community benefit of serving on these boards as, as uh, many people who have sometimes the, the, the hesitancy. And I felt that at, at a younger point in my life too, is who am I? What have I accomplished? because we didn't grow up with our, our parents in these roles, right? Some of our um, non-Asian or non-minority friends have had. And so who am I to have this audacious dream of being a board member? That's insane. That's for, you know, rich white people, right? Like I need to give a certain amount. I don't, how do we, how do we distill? I mean, we're having this conversation to, to dispel that notion and that assumption, but like, how do we continue to do that? You know, it's definitely fulfilling. It's amazing. The people that you meet and just, uh, seeing the faces of the people that you help. But from being on that side and, you know, transitioning into uh, being the executive director of an equally impactful, but numerically headcount wise, a much smaller organization, like how do you encourage people who have a passion for this stuff, but don't feel like it's their right or, you know, their, uh, I don't know, they're, they're uh, have an ability to serve in that way. I think the most important thing is to talk to them, right? It's you've got to have these personal conversations with people and understand why they have that perspective. Why do they think that they can't contribute as a volunteer or as a board member? Um, because really, I, you know, I think I come from um, the perspective that everyone has something to give. Um, 
And when you, you know, it, and it helps talking to people to help discover what your gift is. And, you know, it doesn't have to be something significant and something great, you know? And I think that's one of the misconceptions too, is that you feel like you were saying like, you know, it's being a board member, like what, that's for the rich white people, right? But the reality is, is that we all have gifts to give. And it's just a matter of figuring out what your gift is and talking to people and just, I think you learn so much, Jerry, when you just have one-on-one conversations with people. And I feel like sometimes now it's just, it's a lost art, right? Like you're always in the rush to just get things done and knock off things on your list. And you're meeting with people with specific goals. But like, how often do we just sit down with people just to get to know them? And I think that's what we need to get back to is how do we create those spaces where we can have conversations that really speak to our hearts and help ask the important questions, right? Like, well, what do you, what are you passionate about? Right. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in your podcast, Jerry, are is that you, you ask the right questions and you know, how? <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm not kidding you. So I've gone through so many trainings and workshops around listen first and how do you listen first to people and ask the right questions and ask those open-ended questions to have the right conversations. And I think uh, sometimes we're scared to have those conversations, but you just have to, you know, and you just have to have the conversations with no goals in mind, but to get to know someone. And that's when you start getting deeper into, well, okay, so if this is your passion, like, why do you think that's your passion? Like, let's dig a little deeper, right? And then, you know, talking to each other about, well, what would make you feel good? Like, if there was an organization that you can help right now, you know, what could you do for them? And, you know, in, and so I, I just feel like if you talk to people the right way that you can really get to identify and discover where, where they can support and what they can support in the community, whether or not it's through um, being on a board or just volunteering for a cause that they are truly passionate about, um, and making sure that they're representing, right? Like they need to make sure that they're uh, showing up for the next generation. And um, because that, you know, as we move forward and as we move on, you know, it it's just, I always think about my kid, my son, and I want to make sure that he knows that it's totally normal for a Korean mom to be an executive director, you know, and that's part of his life. And he knows that that's a reality for him because that's what I'm doing it for too. And so there's always opportunities. um, And we just need to talk to one another and connect dots, network with each other. And and I'd add that, you know, we, we, we make this distinction between not being involved and then board member but then there's like 10 different steps for engagement and involvement in between like volunteer. Uh, and then there's so many varieties of that join a committee. Um, like 
help with a gala, help with making some phone calls. There's, there's so many ways to help. And in, in particular, especially given where we are right at the end of 2020, as wealth disparity has increased greater in 2020, yes, there are plenty of people who can cut the big checks and whose livelihoods have not been impacted, but disposable income has also decreased for the average family. And so charity giving, nonprofit giving certainly is being impacted um, in, in, in ways that we had not imagined. And, you know, even membership organizations like the Y, whose physical involvement, or I guess physical presence for members was, was a high uh, part of what that membership meant to the average member, like that's also gone. And so, you know, I, I want to just share with our listeners, if you can, it's not always about cutting a check. It's not always about going to a black tie dinner and auctioning off some, you know, some things. If you have extra time, give the extra time. And if you don't know, just ask. I, I, I would, I, I don't speak for all nonprofit EDs out there, but I don't think anybody would turn away meaningful offers of help <laughs> if it was genuine and if, if the volunteer actually followed through with it, you know, because it's, it's going to take a whole lot more than a six or a $2,000 check. It's going to take a whole lot more than some politicians doing what they do for us to get out of this. And especially for nonprofit organizations who genuinely exist to serve the community in ways that government and commerce have uh, willfully or accidentally overlooked we do need as a community, specifically as an Asian American community to support, not just the ones with Asian American or Chinese or Korean American in their uh, nonprofit titles, but also the ones that serve the greater community at large because, or even neighboring communities that, who, who may have, and as we've seen with COVID, both health and financially, black and brown communities have been disproportionately impacted by health and financial impacts of all of this. So if you can help, Bridge that gap, be, be the person to volunteer and to say, hey, I want to help. I have some extra funds or see if your company can match. Volunteer some time, commit to some hours, mentor some kids, host a Zoom session. You don't even need to leave your house. There's a lot, of, there's <laughs> endless things that we can ideate on and for you to get involved with. And, and at the core of it is two words, do something. Because nobody is self-made. None of us are self-made. And if you, even if you think you are or your parents lied to you and told you that you were, they're here because of the generosity of somebody, man. And so I know a lot of these, you know, I call them hustle monsters, but these guys that flex on internet with, I made it on my own and you don't need anybody's help. And yeah, you do. And yeah, you did. And so, especially now, uh, right after the holidays, as you may be listening to this, as we enter a new presidency, a new year, uh, filled with perhaps a little bit more hope and a little bit more optimism, let's also put things into perspective and not completely write off 2020. And also to fill, overflow the 2021 cup so that we can make up for some of the shortcomings that we've experienced in 2020. So you, you've transitioned away from the why and, and taken this great opportunity, Jane, to lead what is, in, in my humble opinion, um, as somebody who's, who's seen it grow luckily and sort of serendipitously from day one, because PK wanted to save some money on a venue. And I've seen this crazy organization grow from one man with a crazy idea into this global movement where um, household names, Nation American Entertainment, owe a lot of their start to this organization. And even today, like AJ did a live stream where like he passed million subs on YouTube. That's insane. And then not that collaboration can take all the credit for it, but it did play a critical role in his and in David's and in other folks' rise. 
it's it's wild to see that. And and so what got you excited about choosing an Asian American organization, particularly in the entertainment and empowerment space, as your next challenge as you uh, continue down this path of being a a, a leader in the nonprofit space to uh, hopefully and not hopefully definitely change some lives and, and better our community this time? You know, I, I finally feel like uh, I'm in my own, I'm, I'm in my own skin, right? Like I feel mm. comfortable with who I am and my identity. And I've started to embrace my, uh, my culture, my heritage, my ethnicity a lot more, I would say probably in the past five years. And so for me personally, that is, it's exciting for me because I, again, just, you know, getting a glimpse of what my childhood was, I, I never really identified as a Korean American. I never had hmm. to, in a sense, which um, I know just sounds weird. But for me now today, at my age today, which I'm not going <laughs> to um, share, um, you know, uh, at my age now, like I finally feel comfortable and proud to say that I'm Korean American. And it took me a long time to get to where I am in, in, you know, in that world. Um, and so for me, I think my, uh, my ability to bring my nonprofit experience and management into a nonprofit, you know, into collaboration to help strengthen um, their organization and to really um, position them for success in the future. Uh, I'm thrilled about that because I, I mean, there's so many possibilities right now. And um, even though things, you know, this year were really rough, like I'm excited for trying new things and, you know, looking at how we shift into serving the next generation of emerging artists and, you know, emerging AAPI artists in the entertainment industry. Um, I will say the entertainment industry itself is very new to me and very, you know, it's very different than the nonprofit experience that I've had over the past two decades. But at the same time, like it's, to me, it's still making connections um, engaging people, right? It's all about empowering, um, empowering young adults and really showing them that there are no, there are no ceilings. There are no, you know, that anything is possible is, is, you know, you just have to figure out how to get to where you want to go. Um, and not to let anything stand in your way. Um, going back to my career path, right? create those opportunities for yourself. And I think that's really like, um, that's something that I'm really looking forward to as I work with collaboration and our volunteer staff, right? Because we are completely volunteer driven, um, is not just in the business nonprofit, um, stuff, but just life, right? Like life coaching and life mentoring and, um, helping them succeed. And, you know, I told, you know, we have our cities in San Francisco and Atlanta right now. And when I met with our city directors, like I told them like flat out my priority as an executive director is to make sure that you're successful. 
if they're not successful, then I'm not doing my job because ultimately it's my job to help prepare them and help empower them to, um, to fulfill the mission of collaboration um, in their respective communities. And so um, I, I feel like that's a huge uh, piece of what my job is as the executive director of collaboration. And so that's something that I'm looking forward to um, as well, because I love working with um, some cool people. They're cool people <laughs> um, and talented. And um, so looking forward to that. Where do you want to, so you had a very, very long run at the Y, 20 plus years. Collaboration just celebrated its 20th anniversary just two weeks and two weekends ago. Um, a great production, by the way. So Marvin, if you're listening, shout out to you and yes. PK and Roy and Minji and all, all the cool people that swung by. Taking it over on the shoulders of the giants of PK and Roy and Minji, um, who, who are all involved still in the organization in one way, shape or form. What would be a dream state for collaboration 20 years from today after you've worked your magic and done all the things that you want to do? Oh, my goodness. Um, dream state in 20 years. Um, I would say that if we've been able to expand um, even more across the country, right, serving more AAPI artists. But I would say first, I would say most importantly, like if we knew that we had made a difference in the lives of our artists and our performers. And I mean that in the sense of how do we really know that we've truly impacted their lives, right? And made, made a difference in the entertainment space in increasing um, diversity and representation and working with some major um, industry leaders like we're doing right now, but, um, you know, and that financially, right, that I, I'm going to dream big. Like, I would love if we had an endowment, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's things like that. I think for me, fundraising is always going to be a big thing because that's how you're going to connect with people. That's how you're going to share your mission and share the impact that you're having. And so, you know, to have a successful fundraising program, you know, in 20 years where we're financially sustainable and um, operating and being able to um, do, you know, offer new programs like Empowered. Our Empowered Conference is one of our biggest um, programs throughout the year. And I would love for that to be just an, onco an ongoing thing where we're providing mentorship opportunities for artists and performers across the country. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's so much. I feel like there's so much with collaboration. Like we know that there have been some great things that have happened over the past 20 years, but I think there's so much that we can do even moving forward, right? Just yeah. going into general nonprofit stuff, um, you know, which you know, obviously is why Roy and the team brought me on board. You know, they really do want to build up the infrastructure as um, a strong nonprofit to be able to be sustainable so that we can have another anniversary, you know, at 40, at our 40th anniversary or our 50th anniversary. That I think is feasible. 
I think when we look at the organization, if you were to ask PK who started it 20 years ago and other people, if you ask him 20 years ago specifically, would you see this going on for 20 years? He probably said that would be the dream. But here we are, right, on, on the backs mm-hmm. of literally thousands of people who've touched the organization and, uh, and the hundreds of thousands who've been touched by the organization through the work that everybody has done. But now it's time to do step two, or it's not step two, but step X, whatever that may be, to really lay the foundation of uh, leaving a lasting legacy that is sustainable, as you said, an endowment that continues to give financially so that we don't have to continue or worry about that on a day-to-day basis or to have um, ongoing relationships or ongoing partnerships with larger organizations or more um, impactful organizations to to do what we do. And, and so I, I think you're the right person for the job. I think it's really exciting. It sucks that you had to start this role in a pandemic and probably haven't seen everybody in face-to-face world yet and that the the, the 20 year celebration had to be uh, fully virtual, but just as like, just as we talked about just before we jumped on, um, there have been some benefits to that, which has been a, the curation of a digital community of supporters that celebrate together. Uh, fundraising took on a new meaning and, and that's evolving as well. And so I'm excited. You know, we often don't have a, a ton of nonprofit folks on the show. Um, this one in particular is, is super meaningful because it's an organization that's given me and the people who've been a part of the organization have led the organization are very, very important people in my life uh, who've, who've given me a lot and who've helped me along. And uh, we've made a lot of fun memories and some memories that we don't remember. And so it's it's super cool uh, to have you come and and take the helm of an organization that, and, and I'm not even one of the people that have gotten the most out of this organization. There are people who've, te- you know, tears of joy and sweat and life changing and confidence building and uh, really just identity forming experiences based on this crazy vision that one dude had. And so now now it's your, you know, big task to fill those shoes and to take it to the next level and on the experiences and the lessons that you have from a global institution and the relationships that you still carry. I, I, I can't wait. It is it is so exciting and so, yeah, I think it's time to build a legacy and, you know, doing this podcast and this will be episode 90 something in, in under a year is, is, is a legacy piece and something that I'm doing for my own kids to let them know that in my life and in their lives, there are people like Aunt Jane who can go on to be the best at doing nonprofit work at the highest levels. And then eventually when the time was right to come home back to the community and to take on the, 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 the reins of one of the most impactful community organizations and, and take it to many, many next levels. So I thank you for the work that you do. It's not easy, certainly not, you know, tough, or I guess not easy when it comes to operating under these circumstances and just, just so grateful. Um, and I know I speak for everybody else involved and uh, just, you know, wish you the best. I, I want to wrap up the conversation here, Jane, in the same way that we always do on this show and ask you to share something from your heart, whether it is inspirational or whether it is anything really uh, to the Asian American community from your experience, your perspectives and in your heart and help us close out the show uh, by completing the letter, dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, it's okay if you don't know. It's, it's okay if you don't know what you wanna do with your life today. If you don't know what you wanna do with your life next week, next month, or next year. Um, Everyone has their own journey and you 
have this amazing opportunity to create your own journey. Uh, mine looks nothing like anyone else's out there and yours isn't going to be identical to someone else's because you're ultimately your own person, your own individual with your own passions and your own dreams and your own quirks and your own um, story. And so, you know, I would really just encourage everyone to stop comparing yourself to other people and believe in who you are, um, believe in your identity, which by the way, it's okay if you haven't quite embraced your full identity yet. Um, and so everything takes time. But I will say on your journey, just make sure that you advocate for yourself. You surround yourself with people that truly believe in you, your passions, your skills, and your talents. And ask for help if you need help. And even if you don't think you need help, accept the help that you're offered. Um, because I think that every step that you take and your life has a meaning and has a purpose. And so, you know, just make sure that you um, create those for yourselves and be your own voice. And I think just personally, again, just going back to this place of it's okay if you haven't embraced your identity right now. As I mentioned, I did not grow up in a very... Um, Korean in a very traditional Korean family. But I think as you grow older, you get to appreciate your identity a little bit more. And so be open to it. Be open to learning about it. Ask questions, ask really important questions. And don't miss out on the chance to learn the stories of your parents. Um, I'd say that would be my biggest call to action for anyone listening right now is go and find out your parents' stories. Find out their family stories because it really does um, explain a lot of your upbringing as you know, my story did explain a lot about how my parents were. Um, just have the conversations, get to know them, put yourselves in those, in their shoes, um, because you'll learn a lot from what you hear. You just have to take time to listen. And that's sincerely Jane Kim. I think you might be the first person to actually sign off with their name on the letter. So kudos <laughs> to you. Um, <laughs> um, after 90 something episodes, somebody actually got the letter right. There's two things that stood out to me, which is if somebody offers the help, take it. You don't know what courage it took that person to offer the help. And one of, one of my favorite, actually with the, my very favorite book is called the go giver and it, it goes and it covers five uh, laws of stratospheric success. And that the last rule is be open to receiving because you can't be a giver. It doesn't work, right? Like, if your job is to give and you give and you give and you, and you do the Asian Korean humble thing where you're just like, oh, no, no, it's okay. Then, you, then, then you're taking away the joy of somebody else's giving. 
And if you believe in giving and you know how it, you know, fills you up and just brings out the best in human beings and who are you to take away the joy of somebody else to put, give and, and fill your life with, with the things that make them happy. Right. So, um, and the other thing is, yes, ask your parents, ask your grandparents specifically about their stories, but do what I'm doing. Start something where you tell your own stories today in 2021 so that your kids and that your grandkids maybe don't have the opportunity to ask you. You're, I'm, I'm buying insurance against, you know, me not being here to tell these stories myself. And your perspective changes, your memory fades. And so um, for all the content creators out there, I hope you're doing something a little bit special on the side to leave trinkets of your own memories and your own storytelling uh, specifically for your kids. If you want to be funny, you can do it how I met your mother style. If you want to be more poignant, you can just write letters or do videos. Um, but as you're creating content, as you're spending a lot of time reflecting and thinking about how you want 2021 to be better than your ever other years past, um, consider it adding a little bit of content creation, but not for the public's eyes, but for your own children and then put it in a place in the digital world where they can find it one day and then share what going through 2020 was for you, however old you are and whatever life stage you may be in and, and share some of these lessons. Cause I, I think I'd killed for, you know, my, my late grandfather's stories on when he was in his thirties. Right. Cause as with all of our grandparents who went through some shit, like they, they don't open up about it. They seen some stuff, they done some stuff and they just wanted to see us happy. So they, he, they, they, you know, shielded that away from us. Um, but we wanted to know, but we never got it. Maybe they did. And I was too young to remember. I don't know, but um, I, I just wonder if I was able to hear from what he was going through live and in the moment, you know, 100, I don't know, not 100, 50 years ago. So Jane, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It, it is late night uh, on the 29th of December as, as we uh, get ready to ring in a, a new year. And so you're going to be listening to this in 2021. Um, hope your new year is off to a great start. But as I mentioned earlier, don't write off 2020, learn from it, reflect on it, see how we can build from it. And we've said a lot of things, but uh, make a phone call, reach out to some friends. We all have friends who work in nonprofit. We all have friends who work in education. If you want to be a super badass, call your elementary and high school teachers and say, yo, can I guest lecture? And like, you just chill. They'd love that. And, and oh, you're, yeah. you're, you're going to change some lives of students who get to hear from a different perspective. And so you can guest lecture from you know, your butt at home on Zoom, but do something. Let, let's make a commitment to all do one, you know, one, one small thing as often as we can to uh, bring a little bit of joy into other people's lives. So Jane, thank you. I'm excited for what's to come with collaboration. I'm excited for uh, what's to come with our community um, as we use entertainment and our voices, our actual voices and our gifts to empower and to uplift all of us standing on the shoulders of actual giants in our space and uh, just really excited for you uh, to have found a place where you can feel and be authentically yourself. And so I can't wait to hang out in person. Can't wait to go to the next collaboration event, whenever that may be. Hopefully it's this year, God willing. Yeah, seriously. Get your damn vaccines, people. Um, oh, I, and, hope, I hope so. <laughs> and if you got some extra coin, cut a check to collaboration. <laughs> I'll see you yeah. guys. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. See you next time, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. I want to thank Jane again for coming on this show. Um, just, I don't know. Uh, Jane, Jane has a unique uh, heart and uh, servant mindset. And I'm really, really, really excited. Uh, not just as somebody who 
has been a part of the collaboration family, um, but just as somebody in the uh, community to see somebody, uh, the right person lead this organization in the next uh, chapters of its existence in 20 years and beyond. So uh, if you found this show, if you found this conversation insightful or fun or memorable, I encourage you to share out this episode. You can do that by doing a quick screen grab, or you can share the link, whether you are listening to us on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else, uh, to your friends and to your network. And again, I want to thank Jane for coming on to the show. Uh, you can feel free to contact us, and I invite you to, at the Asian Americans on Instagram, hello at theasianamericans.com if you prefer email, or just follow me, Jerry Wan, or DM me wherever you can find me in the social media world. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you are staying safe, healthy, and most importantly, happy. Looking forward to sharing more conversations from the Asian American community in the coming days and weeks. And signing off on episode 95, this has been your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for listening to the Asian Americans.